Well, good morning, Marbley. It is such a privilege for me to be here this morning. Uh, one of the great privileges of three back-to-back -back services is getting to participate in and be a part of the wonderful praise and worship. So let's give those guys another hand. And I confess, although this is my first trip to Marbury Baptist, I, being a native East Texan, have been familiar with your impact for Christ, and I've already been blessed today by your love for the Lord and for one another. And what a great uh, privilege you're going to have in having David as your interim pastor. As he said, we have long been uh, prayer partners and friends, uh, and he just gets stronger and stronger, uh, so you're in for a great treat. Uh, David has shared with me that he is teaching through a series in the parables, and he has asked me to continue that with you today. I'm pleased to do so. So would you open your smart device, your Bible, to Luke chapter 7, and I'll be reading in just a moment, beginning in verse 36, Luke 7, 36. I read the story about a preacher, a worship pastor, and a deacon chairman that went on a mission trip together to the jungles of South Africa. And there they were captured by a band of guerrillas. The lead captor told them they were each going to be executed, but he would grant them each one request. The preacher said, well, I, I've got my favorite sermon. It's requested of me to preach everywhere I go. Uh, it takes me about an hour to preach it. I'd love to preach that sermon one more time. And the worship pastor said, well, I've got a concert that I give of my most requested songs. People want me to sing this everywhere I go, and it takes me about an hour to sing it. I'd like to sing that concert one last time. The deacon chairman said, well, I've already heard the sermon and the concert. Go ahead and shoot me first. <laughs> well, this sermon won't take an hour, which I'm glad you're, you know, agree with that. I hope it's not my last, but if it were, there's no one I'd rather talk about than Jesus, and that's what the text is all about today. Jesus was the master storyteller. He called them parables, and the Greek word parable means to cast alongside, rather skillfully, like you fishermen. So a parable was a story that's cast timefully and skillfully alongside to illustrate a truth. Jesus said the most important parable was the sower and the seed, because he said, if you don't understand that one, you won't understand any of them. Were we to ask the children, they would likely say their favorite parable is the Good Samaritan. Perhaps most adults would say the prodigal son. My favorite parable is the one we study today in Luke chapter 7. It's often called the parable of the two debtors. And it's my favorite because in this parable, Jesus reveals the secret to intimacy with Christ. He reveals and unlocks for us what it means to have a passion ignited for Christ. And what could be better in our lives? What could be better this Christmas season than to have your passion for Christ unfold as never before? Would you stand with me as we read the text beginning in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36? And I'll read through, read through the remainder of the chapter. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash her feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. And here's the parable. It's just two verses. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them would love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loves much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said, your sins are forgiven. And those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? Father, it's our heart's cry today that you would open our eyes that we may see. Open our ears to hear. May the ground of our heart be fertile. You who are majestic above the heavens, you who are the creator and the sustainer of all things, speak to us today, not in the wisdom of any man, but in the power of your Holy Spirit. Remove from us all distraction, all fatigue, all the demands of the week ahead, and allow us to see none but Jesus today is our prayer. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The title of the message today is The Passion Principle, and it is my prayer that God would use this message and this messenger, as feeble as I am, to ignite your passion for Christ, because in this story and in this encounter is the key to the Passion Principle. Uh, we're going to look at three things today. First, we're going to look at the setting for the parable. And then the story of the parable, we'll go through those rather quickly and then unpack the secret in the parable. You can follow along in your outline or on the screens before you. Let's begin real quickly with the setting for the parable. Uh, the text is very clear that this takes place at a dinner party, and I think we would all agree that some of life's greatest memories take place around the dinner table. The text reveals that there are numerous people at the party, but it focuses on three. Let's look at these real quickly just this morning, real quickly. First of all, you can write it down, there's Simon the host. Simon the host. The text reveals that he is a Pharisee. He's one of those religious, self-righteous elite who were always threatened by the life and the message of Jesus. So the question might be, why would Simon invite Jesus to his home, to this dinner party? Well, most theologians agree there's probably three reasons. Let's consider them real quickly. First of all, he could have been a genuine seeker. 
much like John chapter 3, the Pharisee Nicodemus who sought Jesus out. But that's the least likely case, my friends, because he did not extend to Jesus the common courtesy and hospitality for a guest. He had no regard for him at all. He could have possibly been a celebrity seeker. Jesus was the biggest news in Israel. Were this today, there would be Jesus sightings all over social media. Perhaps to have Jesus in his home, you know, to rub shoulders with a celebrity would elevate Simon himself. He could have been a celebrity seeker. Most likely, he was an opportunity seeker. The Pharisees were always looking at opportunities to trap Jesus in things he said or in things he does. And, and perhaps to, to, to be able to have him in his home in this informal setting, he could trap Jesus in some way in his words or actions. What a trophy that would be if he were the one to bring Jesus down. But that would be like damning Niagara Falls with the toothpick. Whatever the reason, Simon is the host. Then there's Jesus the guest. Jesus, the guest. Now think about it, friends. He is the king of the universe, the Lord of lords, the creator of all things. Apart from him has nothing been made that was made. And yet he only comes, he only abides where he's invited. In fact, Revelation 3.20 says that he stands at the door and knocks. And it was not unusual for Jesus to associate with tax gatherers and sinners, as this verse suggests. Uh, he would not be uncomfortable meeting in a Pharisee's home. Jesus always had a kingdom agenda. He was always on mission, if you will. Likewise, for you and I, church, we must always have a kingdom agenda. We have to get close enough to the world, friends, for them to see Jesus. We have to get close enough to the world for us to be salt and light. Okay? As long as we live out our faith in the holy huddle of the church, the world will go unchanged. So there's Jesus, the guest. Then there's the woman who I'm going to call the worshiper. You might write that down. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the courtyards of Jesus' day were often open into homes, so it wouldn't be difficult for this woman to crash this dinner party uninvited or unannounced. And when she comes in, you know, she sees Jesus, she recognizes him, because likely she's heard him speak. A harmony of the Gospels, which is a good way to study the Gospels, a harmony of the Gospels reveals that this dinner party takes place right in the area and after the event of Matthew chapter 11. You Bible scholars may recall that's the occasion that Jesus says to the crowds, Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest unto your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you'll find rest. Perhaps the woman was in the crowd when Jesus spoke those words. Her life has been hard labor, heavy laden, she finds in Jesus hope, the truth that she's looking for, truth that can set you free. So she finds out where Jesus is, and she comes to the dinner party, and she's carrying an alabaster vial of costly, precious ointment. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then she does something, friends, that had you been there, would have taken your breath away. You see, ladies, in Jesus' day, in public, you would wear your hair up, kind of in a bun. 
Hair was loosened and let down only behind closed doors, only in intimacy. And here she comes, and she pours out this ointment upon Jesus' feet, and she takes out her hair long enough for it to reach down and wipe the feet of Jesus. And Simon is shocked and appalled. And did you see it says, he says to himself, this guy can't be a prophet. Doesn't he know what kind of woman this is? She is a sinner. So he rebukes Jesus in his thoughts and he judges the woman. But listen, my friends, there are no private thoughts. Did you know it? Hebrews 13 says that Nothing is laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Psalm 139 says he knows your words before you speak them. And Jesus uses that opportunity, that setting for the parable to cast out this story. So let's go from the setting to the story real quickly. Albert Einstein was once invited to speak at a large conference, and as he's going to the podium after being introduced, the people are on the edge of their seats waiting to hear the smartest man on the planet, the father of atomic energy. He clears his throat, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I have nothing to say. When I do have something to say, I'll let you know. And he goes back and sits down. You're probably thinking, I wish some preachers would do that. He wasn't going to waste their time with worthless words. Jesus looks to Simon and says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he spins the parable. Let me overview it real quickly. It's so short. It's the shortest of all the parables, only two sentences. A moneylender has two debtors. One owes a massive debt of 500 denarii. A denarii was a coin worth a day's wage, so this is a year and a half salary. The other owes a debt of 50 denarii, a month and a half salary. Neither of them can pay the debt. Neither of them have the resources to repay. So the moneylender wipes the slate clean and forgives the debt for both of them, great and small. And then he asks, which one of them will love him, appreciate him, thank him the most? And Simon says, the one he forgave the most. Now, let's unpack this and see what this means to you and I. First of all, write this down, the debt of our sin. The debt of our sin. David may have told you, and if he hasn't, you'll probably hear it, that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The earthly story is about money. The heavenly meaning is about the debt of our sin. We all have a debt of sin from the greatest to the least. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6 says all we like sheep have gone astray. We've everyone turned to his own way. Ephesians 2 says that we're by nature children of wrath. Okay, so, so I'm born a sinner by nature and by choice. You may say, well, Andy, I can't buy that. I, I can't swallow that. You don't have to swallow it. It was born in you. We're all nature. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. And sin carries a high price tag, my friends. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. 
Eternity separated from God and eternity is cut off without hope. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The parable is not about money. It's about the debt of our sin. Let's go to number two real quickly. Not only is the parable about the debt of our sin, but the awareness of our sin. The awareness of our sin. When I was in college... I was applying for a job that had a pretty high level of security to it, so I had to take a lie detector test. Uh, I've taken a couple of them, actually. This was my first, and uh, I'll never forget the day. I'm ushered into a fairly dark room. Uh, I get hooked up to all these wires. Uh, the, The tester, who I called an interrogator, you could still smoke indoors back then, was smoking his cigarette held backwards like this, kind of like in a Nazi movie. I will make you talk. You know. and, and he's asking all these questions, and I mean, I'm answering them correctly, and it's just a flat line. And then he asks, have you ever committed a crime? Well, I was raised on the straight and narrow, so I said, no, sir. And I thought, He said, let me ask that again. Have you ever committed a crime? No, sir. He said, son, let me tell you how this works. If you take a paper clip that's not yours... If you take a towel home from the gym that doesn't belong to you, if you break the speed limit, you justify that in your conscience, but in your subconscious, it's stored, and this machine will root it out. And then he said this. He said, there's only one perfect person that ever lived, and you're not him. Well, I got the job, but I learned something that day. How many times must I lie to be called a liar? Once. How many times can I steal to be called a thief? Once. How many times can you commit murder to be called a murderer? Once. How many sins must I commit to be called a sinner? One. Well, Annie, where's that? Look at this verse right here from James 2. That he who keeps the law and stumbles in one point is guilty of breaking it all. Listen, my friends, 99.9% good, 99.9% moral, just, righteous is not enough for a holy God. This parable is not about the amount of our sin, but the awareness. Simon's over here self-righteous, doesn't even give Jesus any regard. And Jesus says, he who has forgiven little in your mind will love little. This woman knows she's nothing. She knows she's lost. She's cut off. She's without hope. He who has forgiven much loves much. It's not about the amount. It's about the awareness of our sin. And the third thing, real quickly, if you'd write this down, the forgiveness of our sin. The forgiveness of our sin. Whether the debt was great, whether the debt was small, neither one of them could pay. Neither one of them had their resources. They were both morally bankrupt to pay the debt that they owe. I'm telling you, my friends, I would not trust the best five minutes of my life to get into heaven. Ephesians 2 says, it's by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness that I've done, but by his mercy he saved me. 
I'm not good enough. Neither are you. Neither are you. Notice this verse real quickly from Colossians 2. What a great verse this is. And you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he's taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. It's not about the amount of sin, the awareness. And I can't accept the forgiveness if I'm not aware of the debt. But now that you're aware of the debt, I want you to know, church, it is forgiven in Christ. And what a great picture this is. You know the story of the Roman soldier that nailed to the cross the Jesus, King of the Jews, written in multiple languages. But in the court of heaven, what was really nailed to that cross was the record of all of your sins, the certificate of debt against you, Colossians 2 says. And he nailed it, and he took it away. Jesus' last words from the cross were those great words, it is finished. He's not talking about his life. You can't kill God. It was an accounting term, meaning paid in full. Wiped clean, taken away. The parable is about the debt of our sin, the awareness of our sin. Simon wasn't, the woman was, and the forgiveness of our sins. And forgiveness can't be accepted unless you're aware of the debt. Well, Andy, that's all very interesting. What's the secret? What is the secret in the parable? Let's camp here till we finish. Reuters News Service recently reported about a power plant in New England that had a power failure resulting in a blackout in the whole area. The best engineers could not figure out how to get the power restored, so they called out of retirement an old engineer He goes to the plant, he looks around for a while, he stops at a strategic valve and he asks for a hammer. Supplied the hammer, he takes it, taps twice on the valve, the power comes back on. Then he submits an itemized bill that says this, tapping with a hammer, two cents. Knowing where to tap, $2,000. Okay, lean in here, folks, okay? Lean in. Often we want greater passion for Christ. You know, we go to conferences, listen to podcasts, read books, and those things aren't worth two cents if we don't understand this passion principle. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. You see, the good news is only good in your life to the level that you understand how bad the bad news is. You've all heard good news, bad news story. I heard about a preacher. Once the secretary comes into his office and she says, Preacher, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is, is we had two consecutive Sundays last month where we had all-time record attendance. The preacher says, That's great. That's good news. What's the bad news? Well, it was the two weeks you were on vacation. You see, one is weighed in light of the other. And that's true of our passion for Christ. Forgiven little, 
loves little. Forgiven much, loves much. You want to see the bad news, friends? It's in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a lengthy verse, so bear with me. And you were dead in your trespasses and in sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, that's the devil, and the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature, there it is, children of wrath as others were, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you were saved by grace. And he's raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ. So then remember, remember, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ you are far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you see the ledger, folks? Here's the bad news over here. It was once me. It was once you. A sinner by nature and by choice. Bound by the ruler of this world, the devil. On the road to hell. Without God. Without hope. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Not one promise in that book was mine. That was me. But God, rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. Now, here's Simon over here. If you're like Simon, I never was such a bad guy. God never had to forgive me much. Your love will be small in comparison. But if like this woman, you know that you're dead, that you're without hope, you're bound for hell, you will love great in comparison. You'll cling to Jesus and never let go. Let me use this illustration. I don't know about here in Longview, but in South Tyler where I live, I'm convinced, I'm convinced there's more squirrels per square mile than any place in the United States. And they're all in my yard. So let's suppose I'm going out for my afternoon run. My wife is a fitness instructor, so she's ball and chain. She gets me going. So, uh, so I'm going out for my afternoon run, and here in the middle of the road is a freshly killed squirrel. Work with me, folks. I know it's right before lunch. But it's just happened. He's fluffy, so lifelike, like a little stuffed animal, but dead. A week goes by. That carcass is still there. Now there's some flies flying around. Doesn't smell too good. Several more days go by. Day 10, now it's just some bones, patches of fur. Let me ask you, is it any more dead on day 10 than it was day 1? Listen carefully. Lean in. There's no degrees of deadness, just different rates of decay. That's true spiritually. Oh, we've got the reprobates, and there's nothing that separates me from the serial killer, terrorist, the worst person on the planet. There's no degrees of deadness, just different rates of decay. And your love for Christ will be in comparison to how much you think you've been forgiven. That's the passion principle. Real quickly, you're going to have to listen a little faster. We're almost done. Let's consider the worship wonder. I think this is the greatest act of worship in all the Bible. 
This woman comes in carrying the most costly thing that she owns. She lets down her hair in public and she performs this unto Christ. Worship is personal and it's costly. It is personal and it's costly. Let's use a couple of examples from the life of David. Remember you Bible scholars when the ark was recovered from the Philistines and they're bringing it back to Jerusalem in this great procession and King David is dancing and worshiping before the ark? He's doing it for an audience of one. His wife, Michelle, is watching from the window above the street. And when David goes home, Michelle says, my, how the king acted the fool today. And David said, you hadn't seen anything yet. This was under the Lord. I'm not talking, listen, hear me close. I'm not talking about forms of worship. This is deeper than that. But your worship in your private devotion at home, your worship here in the sanctuary at Moberly is for an audience of one. This woman didn't look around at what people would think. It was just her and Jesus. Worship is personal. Worship is costly. The most expensive thing she owns, she pours it out to the Lord. I did some research. I hope you appreciate it, man. Did you know the most costly fragrance that's ever been sold is DKNY, I think that stands for Donna Karen of New York, a fragrance called Golden Delicious. It was in a, a container that was laden with jewels. The container attained 2,700 white and pink diamonds, 183 sapphires, three rubies. It cost $1 million per ounce. If you hurry, guys, you can get some for Christmas. Or you can go to Walmart and buy DKNY Golden Delicious in a regular bottle for $65. But for this woman, it was the most costly thing she had. Worship is costly. Well, Annie, what do you mean by that? When you, like Romans 12 says, make your life a living sacrifice to the Lord, that costs something. When you, like Hebrews 13 says, that you offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of your lips, especially when everything is falling apart in your life, that worship is costly. When you give out of your lack, not out of your abundance, that's costly. When you take a stand for Christ in a culture that's opposed to Him, that costs something. Worship is personal and it's costly. This woman understood that. Simon was clueless. And the third thing is the fragrance factor. Now get this, in the movie of your mind, she pours out this precious ointment, she anoints Jesus. She goes back out into the streets, changed, and now the fragrance that was on Christ is on her. That'll preach, folks. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says this. Notice that it's in your outline. Thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumph, possession, and spreads us through us the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. When you have that kind of encounter, that kind of intimacy with Christ... And you leave this place, you leave your quiet time, you leave th that presence and go into the community, the health club, the neighborhood, the school, and the fragrance of Christ is on you. That's when you're salt and light, my friends, because they recognize in you someone that's been with Jesus. And it flows from a heart. It flows from a life.
that understands that the level of good news in your life is only good to the level that you understand how bad the bad news is. That's takeaway number one. The good news in your life is good to the level that you understand how bad the bad news is. And here's takeaway number two, real quickly. Takeaway number two. Your passion for Christ will be in proportion to the awareness of your sin and how much you've been forgiven. See, that's why the closing verses of Malachi says this, that when the Son of Righteousness comes with healing in His wings, we will leap like calves released from the stall. Now, I was born in the country, raised on the farm. You can take the boy out of the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. And I've seen calves released from stalls. Maybe some of you cattlemen, you have them in a head gate and you're doctoring them or whatever, and you release them and they go out and they leap and they jump. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. I skipped over it if the gentleman can go back. My favorite Christian artist is Stephen Curtis Chapman, who in his song, Remember Your Chains, these are the lyrics. Remember the prison that once held you? before the love of God broke through. Remember the place you were without grace when you see where you are now, remember your chains. There's no one more thankful to sit at the table than the one who best remembers his pain and no heart loves greater than the one who is able to recall the time when all he knew was shame. The wings of forgiveness can take us to heights we've never seen, but the wisest ones will never lose sight of where they were set free. That's why Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you know, in Revelation 3, you've done a lot of great things, but I've got this against you. You've left your first love. Remember from where you were fallen. Remember where you were. That's the bad news. Remember where you are because of grace. That's the good news. And your passion for Christ is going to be in proportion to your understanding of forgiveness. Max Lucado, in his book, The Eye of the Storm, tells the true story of World War II pilot Eddie Rickenbacker, one of America's most decorated war heroes. And he and an aircraft of eight went down in the South Pacific. They had a crash. They survived, got into a lifeboat, but they were off radar. Nobody knew where they were. After eight days, they were near death. They were dying from starvation and dehydration. Eddie Rickenbacker shared a brief devotion. They prayed for a miracle but waited to die. One by one, they fell asleep, and as Eddie Rickenbacker was dozing off to sleep, he felt something on his head. He reached up, grabbed it. It was a seagull. They quickly feathered it. And they quickly ate what they could, and they used the rest for bait. And for another 24 days, they were able to catch enough fish to sustain life until they were rescued. Many years later, every Friday evening at his seaside home, Eddie Rickenbacker would take a bucket of shrimp down to the pier as the seagulls gathered around. And he, one by one, would take them and say, thank you, thank you, thank you remembering the life that gave him life. See, that's the woman. And every one of us here today, me included, are either a Simon 
or this woman. And your love for Christ will be in proportion to your understanding of forgiveness. It's not about the amount. It's about the awareness and the cost. I'm going to pray with you. And then Paul is going to come up and dismiss us. But perhaps today there's someone here. For the first time in your life, the lights are beginning to come on regarding the gospel. You realize that you're a sinner and sin carries the highest price tag for the great and the small alike. But Jesus paid the price for your sin to satisfy the holiness of God. And all scripture says you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus and you can be saved. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Perhaps for others here today like me, you know, God has opened up the curtains of grace just enough to see how dead we were apart from him. That's the bad news. But your love for Christ is in proportion to that understanding. I'm going to pray for you and pray that you go from here today with the fragrance of Christ upon your life and more in love with Jesus than you've ever been. Would you pray with me, please? Father, cause us to be doers of your word and not just hearers. Thank you for rolling back the scroll and the curtains of our memory to remember our chains and where we were without grace. Deliver us from being a Simon, thinking you never forgave, had to forgive us much. Help us to have the understanding and the awareness of our sin and the great cost of our forgiveness. So that as we leave here, in everything that we do, may you increase Jesus and we decrease, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.